the 400th anniversary of the forced arrival of enslaved Africans in Virginia. I think that there's enormous pride in the history of some of these churches that have lasted so long after going through so much. There's a continuing desire to both remember the history and move forward. And one of the things that has been most striking to me over the course of this reporting is the resiliency of these African-American leaders who made the decision to be Christians in their own way, not Christians in the way that they were being perhaps controlled or an attempt to control them by white masters, for instance. This is Beliefs. I'm Bill Baker. Our guest is Adele Banks, national reporter for Religion News Service. Her series of articles on the anniversary of the arrival of the first enslaved Africans in the historic settlement of Jamestown puts a religious lens on the abduction, enslavement, and struggle for civil rights of African Americans over the last 400 years. RNS reporter Adele Banks joins Beliefs producer Jay Woodward from her home in Maryland. Adele Banks, thank you for joining us here on Beliefs. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. Uh, we've asked you here to talk about your reporting series published earlier this month on the 400th anniversary of the first forced arrival of enslaved Africans in Virginia. Just so that we can get a sense, because it's so easy to become distanced from the enormity of the slave trade and the history of slavery in the country, could you just talk us through the history of that moment, what we were on the doorstep of, and what it became? Sure. So a lot of people this year, especially this month in August, are planning to commemorate the forced arrival of Africans to Virginia. And I thought that it was important to write stories that talked about how religion tied into all of that as much as we're able to determine. And so the totals that scholars say are part of our history is that 12.5 million Africans were transported and sold during the transatlantic slave trade. That would be between the 16th and 19th centuries. And according to U.S. historians, more than 300,000 Africans were shipped to the U.S., and then if you jump ahead to the 1860 census, the recorded U.S. slave population was close to 4 million. And there was an Emancipation Proclamation that allowed some slaves in the South to be freed, but slavery was not abolished formally until 1865 when the 13th Amendment was ratified. So 300,000 Africans forcibly removed to America starting 400 years ago in the Jamestown colony. And so they're planning some events this year. Is that correct? That's right. Around the weekend of August 23rd to 25th, it's expected that a lot of people will be traveling to that area to recall these events. And um, a lot of people have been marking it in all sorts of ways Throughout the year, there's one organization that created a devotional to think about what all of this means and how people should move forward. Um, there are people planning pilgrimages to the Jamestown site. And so it's been a time of introspection and a time when everyone from scholars to uh, church members to um people who maybe didn't realize this history are starting to focus on it again. So your articles track the movement of faith, and the anniversary is a great window to look at the parts 
of the legacy of slavery that are entwined with faith. So where did you begin your reporting series? I began with Jamestown, and I happened to be there on a day when there were two things happening. One was a first Africans tour where a public historian of what's known as historic Jamestown took a group of people along the property that this organization has helped people be able to see what it was like in Jamestown many, many, many years ago. And he literally walked this group of people by properties where there are ruins, where some archaeologists have been able to unearth aspects of Jamestown. And he talked about what it was like for the first Africans to be in this area and about how the history has sort of been covered up and needs to be revealed. And then after he finished, for the first time, a woman named Valerie Holmes, who was an interpreter at the same historic Jamestown site, told the story of Angela. Angela is one of the first Africans who was brought to Virginia forcibly. And this interpreter brought her to life, so to speak. And um, we were sitting next to a very windswept James River, and she spent about half an hour helping people understand what it would be like and what it was like for Africans to be suddenly um, dragged and gagged and held in pens and put in slave ships. And she told the story very compellingly, and she told the story with snippets of faith. And she talked about the fact that of all the things the ship could be named that she was transported on was one named for St. John the Baptist. And um, she chose to portray Angela's faith as Catholic um, because there were um, missionaries, priests in the part of Africa from which she was taken and what is now known as Angola. And... um, But I talked to a variety of scholars there and elsewhere about the fact that Angela's uh, faith is a bit of a mystery. Many people believe, many of the scholars I talked to believe that because of the horrendous conditions that uh, she and other enslaved Africans had to go through, that it would be very difficult to do this without some faith. But the question of what that faith is still remains. There's so many interesting aspects of this portrayal that you're talking about, not the least of which is the fact that she was, sounds like she was given a Christian name at some point in the journey. That's right. I talked to one of the scholars, the public historian, actually, who led the first Africans tour about that. And he said that it could mean any number of different things. Um, it could mean that she was uh, baptized with that name, that she was given that name. He said that there were forced and mass uh, conversions or baptisms that happened to these enslaved Africans, perhaps even on the ship. And um, he said that there was this thought he believes amongst some of those who might have been doing the baptizing that they were saving the souls of people who might even die on these ships on their way to the Americas. I found some other scholars who spoke about this and and had written about this, and there was discussion about how Catholic bishops of the time in Africa and beyond were not known to have condemned the slave trade. And there were at least a few priests, but just few that were known to have questioned whether these conversions were truly legitimate. Well, that raises an interesting question, of course, because one would have to wonder how the faith leaders at the time could reconcile 
uh, scripture could reconcile uh, tenets of faith with the slave trade and the forced removal of Africans to America. That's exactly right. That's why it was so striking to me when I did find an article about um, a priest who did question some of this. Um, There was at least somebody who was wondering, you know, is this right? Does this in any way match our Christian faith? And um, that's one of the uh, toughest things to understand when you try to look at these issues of slavery and religion. Hmm. You mentioned that there is evidence that there were Catholic missionaries moving through Africa at the time. What do we know about the faith of the Africans that were removed? Were some of them Christian? Were some of them coming from their own faith background? What was the landscape of faith for these people? Um, Scholars have told me that there were Christians as well as um, Muslims, about 20% of enslaved Africans were Muslim, according to some scholars. And then there are traditional religions. Uh, One is called Bakongo, that was a faith of people in this area of Angola. And so there were also a mixture of faiths where sometimes, uh, say, Catholicism and Bakongo were, there was a mixture of the two in, and that was the faith that people practiced. And the question is, what was the faith of this person, Angela, in particular, and and that's what's really not known. Um, but her existence is recorded in documents of uh, a captain that lived in Jamestown, and so that's why she can be portrayed by name. And there's a, a muster, there's a listing that uh, includes her name, and in Although it says Angelo in some of the records, as opposed to Angela, and it describes her as a quote-unquote Negro woman, but it does not describe her faith. You mentioned just briefly that about 20% were Muslim. Uh, Do we know what happened to adherence to Islam as that population arrived in America? Um, Muslims were not discussed too much at in Jamestown when I was visiting that area, but I know that there is history and there's recording of uh, a Muslim slave that has been highlighted in museums uh, such as the Smithsonian. And that history tends to be brought up a little later, not so much at this early point in the early 1600s. Your reporting took you further south as well into what could be easily described as both the heart of the Confederacy and the heart of the civil rights movement of the 60s. Why don't you um, tell us a little bit about your trip to Montgomery, Alabama? Yes, it was so striking to be in Montgomery because um, it was sort of a walking tour of the connections and the proximity of properties that connected to slavery, connected to civil rights, connected to the Confederacy. The most striking example, perhaps, is that Dexter Avenue King Memorial Baptist Church, which is named for Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., is the place where he first became part of the civil rights movement. But the church that he pastored in Montgomery was once uh, located in what was a slave pen. And it just shows how there has been a transition over time just with that one church alone. And other examples are that there is an Episcopal church, um, St. John's Episcopal church, that's not too far from Dexter Church. And that is where Confederacy President uh, Jefferson Davis worshiped. And you can literally cross the street from that church and be 
uh, in the block where Rosa Parks was tried when she refused to give up her seat on the bus to a white man. And then not too far away from there, not quite an easy walk, but on the edge of downtown, there's a church now known as Old Ship African Methodist Episcopal Zion. And it happens to be located across the street from the brand new uh, lynching memorial that has been uh, created by the Equal Justice Initiative. It's very striking to stand on this property with these orangey brown columns that recall lynchings of some 4,400 people and to look across the street and see a church that has existed since before slavery ended. And the the lynching memorial that you're talking about, it's a striking memorial, isn't it? You stand underneath the steel columns and look up at them, these massive steel beams they look like. Is that right? That's exactly right. And so you can walk through them and you see on each of the beams the names of different counties across the country. And for each county, there's a listing of names of people um, who were lynched. And there was one um, uh, sign that I saw that showed the connections of this memorial that the full name of is National Memorial for Peace and Justice. There's a sign that uh, speaks of uh, an instance where a religious ceremony was cited as the reason for a, a lynching. I just want to tell you what that sign says. The sign says, Arthur St. Clair, a minister was lynched in Hernando County, Florida in 1877 for performing the wedding of a black man and white woman. So for anyone who has never uh, been to the South, who has never um, lived in that area of the country and, and may not know what it's like to be connected so directly to the area where it was so commonplace and it was so embraced, what is it like to encounter the historical fact of slavery in a town? How do they, how do they live in that community with that legacy? That's a very good question. Um, I think that uh, amongst some of the African Americans, there is a sense of pride in how far they have come um, since some of this tragic history. Um, I talk to historians who talk about this being uh, such a pivotal place, Montgomery. And I should mention that uh, in addition to uh, Dexter Avenue King Memorial Baptist Church being the uh, connected or having a former site that was a slave pen. The church is also a block away from the um, the Alabama State Capitol, and that building was the capital of the Confederacy, and that building was the location where Reverend Martin Luther King Jr spoke at the end of the Selma to Montgomery March. So you can literally stand on the corner where that church is and look up a block to this Capitol building that also is full of history. And if you tour the um, church in the basement, there is still the lectern that was transported to the um, flat, a flatbed on the flatbed truck so that King could speak outside the Capitol when uh, then Governor George Wallace would not permit him to stand on the steps of the Capitol. I asked the tour guide about all of these connections and um, and instead of calling it sort of pivotal, she felt like 
she felt like there had been some steps that she considered divine that had led to improved lives for uh, African-Americans, including the middle-class African-Americans that led the church that King came to pastor. Mm. So if I got this right, Montgomery, Alabama is also celebrating an anniversary of sorts. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, Montgomery is celebrating, uh, and is Alabama, the 200th anniversary, the bicentennial. And I think that there is some sense of recognizing some of the difficult past, um, even as they, you know, I guess, try to look forward to the future. Um, I spoke to an archivist who pointed out some of these connections that I'm talking about uh, across time. And I think that there is a hope that there will be some new uh, memorials and new recognition of the overall 200 uh, year history. Um, One example of or two examples that I could see where there's been greater recognition in recent years is that the same Equal Justice Initiative has a museum that's uh, opened as well as the memorial and that, that traces this history. And it literally traces it from slavery to lynchings to mass incarceration and draws a line through all of those and connects them. And uh, again, just a couple of blocks from Dexter Avenue Memorial King Memorial Baptist Church, um, uh, there's a park where there's h- historic signage about the fact that there were slave pens in this location. And now there's a flowing fountain. There's a uh, recognition of the importance of education. And there's the recognition of what are called outstanding Alabamians. And one of them recognized is Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. So it seems that there is a uh, arc of recognition that's happening within Montgomery. Um, but I think that there's still a ways to go there. So your reporting also took you north to New York City and to Mother AME Zion Church, the oldest black church in New York State, founded by free blacks and former slaves. Uh, how did the faith legacy translate to a different community, to a different environment? Uh, what did you find in New York? Um, In New York, I got to talk to the new pastor of Mother A.M.E. Zion Church, Mother African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church, about his congregation's history. And it is an example of how um, people who were either slaves or free blacks were in position to start their own congregations, both uh, in the North and in the South, um, despite the existence of slavery in uh, parts of the country. In the case of this particular church, um, a group of black members left a white congregation in 1796 to form their own congregation uh, that could include black licensed preachers. And one of them, a man named James Varick, um, later became the first bishop of the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church, a denomination that formed about 25 years after this church, this one congregation began. But part of the reason that these uh, folks started their own church is what they could not do at the white church that they had been attending, uh, John Street Methodist Church. They had to wait to take communion until all the whites in their congregation had partaken of the sacrament. And they weren't able to lead the way they wanted to lead. And so they were able to start their own congregation instead. Do you get the sense that the congregations of these churches now can relate 
to the significance of being able to start their own congregations? How deep is that through line? I think that there's enormous pride in the history of some of these churches that have lasted so long after going through so much. And there is also a desire now to continue to recognize some of this history. Um, So there's a continuing desire to both remember the history and move forward. And one of the things that has been most striking to me over the course of this reporting is the resiliency of these African-American leaders who made the decision to be Christians in their own way, not Christians in the way that they were being perhaps controlled or an attempt to control them by white masters, for instance. I've talked to some scholars about this and how the spirituals uh, are an example of how people who were slaves had a faith of their own making and how they even if they didn't have their own buildings, they were in what were known as brush harbors or hush arbors to continue to believe as they felt they should believe instead of as someone was trying to tell them. In part of your article for Montgomery, Alabama, you spoke to a man named Curtis Evans. He's a a historian of American religions at University of Chicago Divinity School. And he says the changes that are happening in Montgomery, Alabama are striking because, and this is from your article, Slave owners may have originally hoped to use Christianity as a form of social control, but a century later, many black clergy become active in the civil rights movement. What is the legacy of of liberation? Um, It's interesting to have been able to write a series of stories that start with a woman who was forcibly brought to this country and had some faith that people are not able to specifically pinpoint to going to churches in Montgomery, the sites of churches where people were able to start their own congregations and lead, sometimes even when they were slaves, as is the case for Old Ship African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church in Montgomery, to... Um, a congregation like Mother African Methodist Episcopal Zion in Harlem that ended up starting, being the starting point of a whole nother denomination where African Americans said, this is how we believe. And they interpreted the Bible in a way that they saw connected their lives not only to salvation, but to liberation. America's in a, a new and difficult spot when it comes to understanding its origins with slavery uh, from increased and much more public, much more open talks about reparations all the way to our Senate majority leader who about a month ago, he stated, I don't think reparations for something that happened 150 years ago when none of us currently living are responsible is a good idea. That's uh, Senator Mitch McConnell. It seems like in spite of the growth and the development and all of the ways we've moved through understanding slavery, that we're in some ways growing further apart from each other when we understand the legacy. And uh, but at the same time, other people are starting to gather together. There's, there's increased momentum to, to revisit it. Do you see 
something happening now that hasn't happened before? I think that there's really a mixture of reaction as we deal with these modern events and the rhetoric that is continuing, even as we've dealt with recent mass shootings. I think that there are some people who are finding their voice. And I think that some of these churches that I visited and some of um, these scholars I've spoken to are seeing that there has been a continuing thread where people who have been oppressed have been able to speak for themselves as people of faith in their own way. I think the question remains, what happens next? Um, Whether it's legislation, whether it's continued protests, whether it's services of remembrance. And I think there may be fewer people willing to be silent about this history than in the past. But I think there's going to be a question as to whether there's a change from silence to discussion or a change from silence to action. And I think that the jury's still out on that. Mm. Adele Banks, thank you for joining us on Beliefs. I appreciate your time. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Our guest is Adele Banks, national reporter for Religion News Service, speaking on the 400th anniversary of the forced arrival of enslaved Africans in Virginia. The conversation continues on our Facebook page, and we tweet at Beliefs Podcast. If you like our program, come review us on iTunes. Beliefs is brought to you with the support from the Bernard L. Schwartz Center for Media, Public Policy, and Education at the Graduate School of Education at Fordham University. Jay Woodward is our producer. We had production assistance from Joanna Broder. The theme music is by Edward Billis. I'm Bill Baker. Thanks for listening, and please tell a friend.